You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Libby Casey, senior news anchor here at The Post. Thank you so much for joining us for this special conversation about COVID and children. I'm glad to be joined by two women whose expert insights are helping a lot of parents navigate their way through this pandemic. Let's set the stage here for what we're facing. Mask mandates are ending or changing. We're also still waiting for that vaccine for children under the age of five. The United States is facing the grim milestone of 1 million deaths due to the pandemic. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization is estimating that there were 15 million excess deaths globally. That's according uh, to new analysis. Let's go to my guests now to talk about children and COVID in this moment. Emily Oster, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll bring you into the conversation. And we're also joined by Lena Wen. Dr. Lena Wen, welcome to you as well. Uh, thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So we have a lot of questions that have been sent to us by our audience members, but I'd like to remind everyone watching that there's still time to get your questions to Dr. Wen and Dr. Oster. You can send them to us on Twitter. It's at Post Live, and we can bring them into this conversation. Lena, let's start with this first question that came in to us. Whitney in New York asked, can we consider the pandemic over? Dr. Wen. Well, I would say it depends on who is asking and for what purpose. If we're asking, is the pandemic over for the purpose of understanding this as a policy issue, the answer is definitely not. We've seen that COVID has really surprised us thus far with new variants that have risen, new surges, and we don't know what might come our way. There may be a variant in the future that evades the immunity provided by prior infection or vaccination. We need to be ready for that. And we don't know whether that's going to come our way or not. And so policymakers should not consider the pandemic should be over to be over. I really hope that Congress steps up and provide the Biden administration with what they need in terms of funding for new vaccines in the future, for testing, for treatments that we really need. But I would say if people are asking, is the pandemic over for them? I think there are many Americans who would say it already is in the sense that they have already returned to pre-pandemic normal. And many people will say that they have not. We are at a point in the pandemic where the decision-making has shifted from government mandates to individual response and individual decision-making. And I think what we have to do, and I know what Emily has done a lot too, is helping people to navigate what are the risks in their own lives, depending on their own medical circumstances, their tolerance of risk, and how important resuming normalcy is for their physical health, but also their emotional health. It may be very reasonable to say, I'm vaccinated and boosted. Um, my children are vaccinated, and I want to go back to all aspects of travel and dining indoors and having my kids be in school, doing all their extracurriculars with no masks and not thinking about COVID. I think the pandemic could be over for them. But I think just as reasonably, there could be many people who are saying, I'm around people in my household who are immunocompromised. Uh, I'm not yet sure about the risks of long COVID. I want to still be very cautious. Those are all reasonable paths for people to take at this point in time. Yeah, I want to talk to Emily in a moment about data. But first, uh, Dr. Wen, you know, we heard 
Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci makes some news recently because he said, uh, we are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. That was on the PBS NewsHour. He later clarified his comments to my colleagues here at the Washington Post to, to make it more nuanced and talk about being in a transitional phase. And he said the pandemic is not over and we may expect more waves. So as we, even the experts sort of wrestle with how to talk about this, if you're someone, Dr. Wen, who feels like they are still deep in this moment, and they are still trapped by the pandemic realities. How do you talk to those people who may see their friends and neighbors really moving on uh, for all intents and purposes? How do you talk to those people who feel left behind? Well, I think it's important to have individual conversations with these people. And some of them are my patients, for example, and I talk to them. Some of them have real valid reasons grounded in their own medical situations about why they don't feel like they can move on. For example, maybe they are severely immunocompromised. Maybe they're on chemotherapy. Maybe they have a transplant and are immunosuppressants. And they really feel as if they cannot move on because it is very dangerous for them to get COVID despite vaccination, despite even the therapies that are available. There are a lot of other people who may have some underlying illness, but actually aren't at that significant of risk from severe disease if they're vaccinated and boosted. For example, many people think of asthma as a pre-existing condition, but if you have mild asthma, that does not actually increase your risk of severe illness. And so helping people to understand what their actual risk is and then looking at the whole picture because good health is not just the absence of COVID. I have patients who put off their colonoscopies, their mammograms, and these are patients maybe with a family history of cancer or a personal history of cancer. That's not good. I mean, that fear of COVID is actually leading to poor health in other areas. Or there are many people who have not been optimizing their heart health or have high blood pressure and diabetes and other issues that may actually lead to premature death in a, um, more likely than, um, than COVID. Or what about mental health and the isolation that's come from so many people being separated from their loved ones? We have to take this holistic view of health. And so I think, um, yes, it is recognizing that some people are truly left behind. And for those individuals, we have to do much more when it comes to increasing availability of treatment, getting Evusheld, for example, the preventive antibody to people who are immunocompromised, making sure that everyone who is eligible for Paxlovid knows where to get it, the antiviral pill that reduces hospitalization and death by 90% in people who are, um, who are at severe risk. But it's also helping everybody else to calibrate their true risk of COVID and understanding it as a risk that we accept in our lives the same way that we accept the risk of driving, the risk of any other illness. COVID is going to be with us and we have to learn how to live with it. So Emily Oster, talk to us about your data-driven approach and how you're looking at the COVID rates and numbers right now and, and some of the realities that are happening around us, like mask mandates ending and people you know, trying to go back to some semblance of a normal life. So I really do come at the this question from the data angle, and I'm a parent, and I speak a lot to parents who are now trying to navigate decisions in a world where COVID is, as Dr. Wen has said, it's is it over or is it not over? And people have a lot of that uh, that question. Where I think the data can be extremely reassuring, particularly for parents of younger children, is in looking at the risks that are facing those children in the data, looking concretely at when I am seeing serious illness, are we seeing higher rates of serious illness in younger unvaccinated kids such that we should be thinking of them as more vulnerable? In fact, we're not. What we see in the data is 
young children, un completely unvaccinated, under five age group, much, much lower hospitalization rates than older adults and even than middle-aged adults. The lowest risk of hospitalization in the data is children five to 11, even though vaccination rates in that group were also fairly low. And that's reflecting the overall low risk to young children. So I feel, and I think many of us feel this sense of being left behind as children under five are not able to be vaccinated, that the world is moving on. And what I tell people the data says is, you know, if you are moving on, if you're ready to go on that vacation or get on that airplane with your mother, with your over 65 relative, you should be similarly comfortable doing that with your under five child because those risks are in fact quite a bit lower in that age group. And I, Emily, my sense so, uh, is that yeah, data is helpful in framing this for people. Talk to us about the data when it comes to long COVID. Um, you know, you look at the data. I know Dr. Wen looks at the data, but we are also, and I've seen you you writing about this, Emily, we are anecdotally hearing about more families right now who have been so careful, finally, indeed, getting COVID. And you wrote recently that you don't have the hard numbers on that, but, but you're hearing about it from people. Um, talk to those families about long COVID and risks of long COVID with children. How do you evaluate that risk? One of the things that's very tricky about evaluating the data on long COVID is if you think about how we would collect that information, we go out in the world and we ask, okay, people who had COVID, and now we're gonna ask you 12 weeks, 16 weeks after, do you still have one of these symptoms? And in many of the studies that you look at in this, you have a long list of symptoms, fever, gastrointestinal problems, cold, flu, any runny nose, a long list of things. And a lot of kids have some of those symptoms some of the time. So it's really, really important to focus on the data that comes out of studies that compare kids who had COVID, kids who didn't have COVID. And to ask whether, say, three months later, the kids who had COVID are more likely to have a runny nose than the kids who didn't have COVID, acknowledging that a lot of kids have a runny nose a lot of the time. And when we do that, the data is extremely reassuring. The rates of what we would consider long COVID in kids are very low or quite a bit lower than what we're seeing in adults. And so even with unvaccinated kids, those risks, I think, are, are lower than many people perceive and that is sometimes and lower than it is sometimes discussed in the media. Well, Lena, let's get to a question that you knew was coming. Nicole in Connecticut asks, how will vaccines be rolled out to young children when approved and when will they be approved? Well, I appreciate this question, and it's one that I think about a lot as the mom of two little children who are too young to be vaccinated. I have a two-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old, and we have been waiting along with about 20 million other um, families uh, with, with young kids of, of this age. So um, my understanding is that Moderna has submitted. So there are two. There are two of our, our of our drug companies, Moderna and Pfizer, that are currently um, at the final stages of um, of research for vaccines in, in younger kids. Um, Moderna is testing a two dose version of um, of the of the vaccine for the six months to five year old group. Um, they have already shown promising results. They've already submitted their vaccine for authorization, emergency use authorization, by the FDA. The FDA 
has set aside a few dates in June to review Moderna's application. It's also possible that the Pfizer data may come in in the next few weeks, and Pfizer is currently testing a three-dose version um, of, of their vaccine for this younger age group. And it's possible that Moderna and Pfizer data will be weighed together. It may also be possible that Moderna's data might come out first, and, and FDA will take on just Moderna to start with, and then Pfizer. But according to that timeline, ideally, um, if all goes according to plan, we should be able to have authorization by the FDA in early mid-June. CDC should follow pretty soon thereafter. That means that shots could be going into arms of young kids um, in June. Now, I, mm. I do want to, um, here's my view on this. I'm, I'm not sure if Emily um, uh, agrees on this, but you know, when I look at the data, I agree with Emily completely that the risks to young children of severe illness is much lower compared to older individuals. I mean, that is very clear what, what the data show. I would say that as a parent, I of course don't really want any risk, right? I mean, if you can take the risk of something terrible, and even if it's a low risk, and reduce it to virtually zero, I would want to do that. And so it is both true that for my family, we have decided that the that we're not going to keep isolating, that we're going to resume pre-pandemic normal. And it's not because we're saying there's no risk to our kids, but rather we are recognizing that the risks of keeping them isolated actually outweighs the potential benefit, especially when we're dealing with extremely contagious variants like the BA2 variant and the sublineages that are even more contagious, that, um, the, that the price that we would have to continue paying in order to keep them free from COVID is extremely high. That said, that doesn't mean that I'm anti-vaccine. In fact, as soon as the vaccines are available for my young kids, I want to get them vaccinated because while the risk of severe illness to them is extremely low, I still want to reduce that risk to even lower. And so I think both of these things can be true, that you can want and be actually at the point of resuming your pre-pandemic lives and doing indoor play dates and extracurriculars and other things, while at the same time, be really eager for the vaccine to be available for young kids too. Emily, on that same uh, note, Amanda in Maryland is asking about this June timeline, and she says, should I let myself get excited, or is it my own fault if I experience emotional whiplash? Talk to us about what parents are going through, Emily. I, I certainly think it's not your fault if you experience emotional whiplash. It has been an emotional whiplash experience. There was very early on, we thought maybe we get this in January or February, then there was discussion of April. They said they'd, they'd discuss Pfizer, then they pushed it back. So parents have been through a roller coaster of emotions around this. I do think that uh, that Dr. Gwen is right, that we're likely to see at least pretty robust discussion of this in June. Uh, and of course, it's always very difficult to predict without seeing the data, what the FDA is going to say. Uh, and I and in my view, the biggest uncertainty is around how much they will push for everyone to be vaccinated as opposed to approving it with guidelines that are that are softer. But um, I, I think June seems very plausible. You know, uh, Lena, we had uh, someone write in from New York, Dana's uh, asking about the risk assessment of the vaccine. And I want to put this in some context. We'll do some debunking of this after I read it. But she writes, if the risk to kids is low for COVID and the vaccines are barely effective, why take the risk of a vaccine side effect? So first of all, let's talk about the effectiveness of vaccines, Lena. Um, what's the difference between being uh, protected against getting the virus 
and being protected against getting a bad reaction to getting the virus? Well, I think we should take a step back and talk about what is the purpose of vaccination. Ultimately, the purpose of vaccination for any age is to reduce your risk of severe illness. I think we've gotten used to these COVID vaccines. Initially, when they first came out, it was more than 90% effective at preventing infection. And everybody thought, oh my goodness, that's fantastic. But actually, that's not really why we're vaccinated. We're not vaccinated to prevent you from getting a cold. We are vaccinated to turn something that could otherwise cause you to be in the hospital to turn that into a cold, right? That would be a success story. And so when we look at adults, for example, um, especially against Omicron um, and these new variants, these subvariants of Omicron, the vaccines that we have are actually much less effective at preventing disease, at preventing symptomatic disease but they're still very effective at preventing severe illness. And I think that is what we have to keep in mind. Now, when it comes to children, we still have incomplete data about this. What Moderna has released thus far show that the efficacy in preventing any infection is on par with the uh, efficacy in preventing any infection in adults in light of Omicron, which is not as high as we would want, but ultimately, that's not necessarily what we care about. It's to prevent severe disease, which we don't have data for that for kids. But I guess to me, the risk benefit calculation looks like this. If the vaccines are safe and the side effects are things like fatigue and headache and, um, and muscle soreness at the injection site, I would much rather deal with that for a day or not at all. I mean, some, many, most people actually have no side effects. Um, and so I would much rather deal with side effects like that but understanding that we are doing something, we're giving something that is safe and that can prevent the possibility of something horrible from happening, which is every parent's worst nightmare. Hmm. Lena, this next question just shows how confusing this is for parents right now. This comes from Jessica in Connecticut. She says this, my son just turned five and I was excited to finally get him vaccinated. Now that Moderna has submitted for approval of its vaccine for kids under six, I'm not sure what to do. Do I go ahead and give him the Pfizer vaccine? Uh, for that five to 11 year old cohort immediately? Or do I wait for Moderna's vaccine, which appears to have slightly better efficacy against Omicron? Might we be able to mix doses of <laughs> Pfizer and Moderna for our five year olds? She says, I'm overwhelmed trying to sort through the data to make the best long term decision for my son. Lena, we'll start with you and then throw this to Emily as well. What I would say is there's no right answer here because we haven't studied all elements of this. There aren't head-to-head -head studies comparing Pfizer and Moderna in this five-year-old age group. We also don't know about mixing vaccines in this age group. And so I think a lot of people have these questions, but here's what I would say. Here's what I would do. If I had the opportunity to vaccinate my child now, my, my uh, older child, the, uh, the four-and-a-half-year-old, is not turning five until August, but let's say that he is five. I would get him the Pfizer vaccine right now with the understanding that that is what's available to me now. I would not want to wait for the Moderna vaccine. Again, no head-to-head -head studies between these two. I don't see any reason to wait. Um, and um, I, I also would say when it comes to mixing vaccines, um, there is the possibility of doing that. I mean, in older individuals, um, the um, uh, it is allowed to mix Pfizer and Moderna. You could, in theory, do that. I probably wouldn't because I'd rather use what was studied. And if what's studied is two doses of Pfizer, two doses of Moderna, I probably would not be mixing vaccines. And so to me, actually, the decision is more straightforward, not necessarily mm. based on data, but based on availability. Mm. Emily, anything you want to add to that? 
In general, when we've looked at the data on the vaccines, they are very consistently all protective against serious illness at very comparable levels. And I think to the extent, as Liana's point is well taken, that the goal of vaccines is to prevent against serious illness, there's really not a lot of reason to think that Moderna would be better than the Pfizer at doing that in this age group, based on everything we've seen. And so I, if it were me, I would, I would do the Pfizer on, on the birthday, birthday Pfizer. Emily, uh, Sarah in California is asking this. Are airplanes safe for babies now that the mask mandate has ended? Talk to us, Emily, about the data about flights and COVID exposure. So if you want to, I found the most helpful way to think about this is to to think about how much your risk has changed. So that question presumes that you were comfortable flying with your kid before. And the question is how much additional risk is it now that uh, that not everyone is masking on the airplane? The reality is that the ventilation on airplanes tends to be quite good. Even before everyone was masking on airplanes, we did not see a lot of spread uh, on, on airplanes. And so that suggests to me that while there is some small increase potentially in risks associated with airplanes, it is likely to be very small. And within the airport, you will be able to keep your baby distanced away from other people. So if you were comfortable doing this before, combining the fact that your baby is low risk for serious illness from COVID and the fact that the delta, the change in the risk associated with the airplane is positive, but likely very small, I don't think that for many people, this would change their decision. Again, getting back to the individual risk calculations, there may be some people who will say, I was on the edge, on the edge before, and this small increase in risk pushes me to not be willing to do it. That is an individual decision, which some people will choose to make. I think it's helpful to frame it in a way that helps you compare. Dr. Wen, we have a question from Stacy in Tennessee who wants to know this. How do we know when to stop wearing masks? She writes, my seven-year-old is the only one in his class who, stills wear, who still wears one because they have a two-year-old at home who can't yet be vaccinated. What do you say to Stacy? Well, I want to explain to Stacy what our decision was as a family when it came to masking. So a couple months ago, my son's school went um, went mask optional. So this is the four and a half year old who's in preschool. Um, some children in his class are old enough to be vaccinated and are vaccinated. Some are not. Some of them got COVID. Some of them have not. My son had not. And my husband and I really thought about this question. I mean, on the one hand, cases were declining in our area at that time. Um, and um, and we felt more comfortable because of those uh, lower case rates. But on the other hand, we also thought, well, you know, we've been masking all this time. What's the harm of continuing for a bit longer? And so here's how we actually ended up thinking about this. Two things happened at around that time. One is that um, we saw just how contagious Omicron is. And now we have BA2 and these other subvariants that are even more contagious. And so for us, it was thinking, well, are we really going to avoid Omicron considering that he would be wearing most of the time a cloth mask? That's not really doing much against this Omicron, um, against Omicron and against the Omicron subvariants. The other issue that we considered too is, what is the cost of a mask to him? And I realize that you know some people are going to really dislike this point, but I think we can, I think we have to be intellectually honest. I think there are some people for who really don't mind wearing a mask. Me wearing a mask on an airplane or in a crowded airport, not a big deal. 
But I think it's also true that there are some children, including my son, who have really struggled with speech. And look, I don't I know there aren't any randomized controlled trials to look at whether children's speech and language and cognitive development have been affected by masks. But I can also tell you that before masking, before the pandemic, we used to say that for young kids, we need to really emphasize our facial expressions and enunciate our words and show our children how words are pronounced. And so to say that masking has no effect on learning, especially for some children, I think it's just not true. And for us, we weighed these elements and said, look, we recognize that there is a risk to him, that masks do reduce the risk of virus transmission. But it's also true that in our case, masks have a cost. And we were not willing to continue paying that cost, especially because it's not as if there was a vaccine very soon on the horizon. If they had, if at that time there was a vaccine available in the next week or two, and we were able to vaccinate our young kids, we could have waited a week or two, but we're not willing to wait. Even at this point, we're looking at maybe July or August before our children could be considered to be fully vaccinated. We were not willing to wait until then. Um, I think parents have different ways of weighing their risk calculus in this sense. And I also think it's a different decision for masking our children versus masking adults. I voluntarily wear a mask in crowded indoor spaces because I just don't want to get COVID from the plane, but I would be, or from the airport. But I, But if my child were to get COVID from the classroom, I think the benefit of not wearing a mask to him outweighs that potential risk. You know, Emily, I have another risk assessment uh, for you to talk about. This question comes to us from Joni in Maryland, who wants to know, do you feel it's prudent for the educators in our schools to continue wearing masks both indoors uh, until the children they teach are vaccinated? There's two things I, I think that we can we can say about masks in schools. So one is to ask the question, to what extent do mask mandates in schools uh, lower COVID risks? So we actually don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that mask mandates in schools as practiced actually had a very big impact on COVID rates. The evidence is a, is a bit mixed and it depends exactly on what data you look at, but whatever effects there are, if there are effects tend to be small. A second question is, to what extent is one-way masking? Does a teacher wearing a well-fitting N95 mask, to what extent does that protect them from COVID? And the answer is, as in other settings, yes, one-way masking has been shown clearly to effectively protect the wearer against COVID. So that means this question is, I think, effectively an individual decision. So some teachers will say, it is very important to me to continue to be very careful, whether that's because of my own risk, because of risk to others, because of my feelings about uh, about getting COVID. Uh, and for those teachers, it is great to have the opportunity to continue to wear an N95 mask. Again, important to make sure it's an N95 mask, it's well-fitted, it's worn consistently. Uh, if the question is, should we enforce the wearing of those masks uh, in teachers, I think that that would be beyond what we have seen evidence supporting in, in the data. But one-way masking can be very, very effective. Dr. Wen, a question to you from Stephanie in Virginia, who has a specific question that we can all learn from. She's at home with a two-month-old newborn, and she has a grandfather planning a flight to visit. What safeguards or protocols do you recommend? Uh, let's talk about tests, PCR versus a rapid antigen test, when, how often to test, and then a quarantine. She asks, Dr. Wen, please help her with these decisions. Well, I, I would say the very first thing for people to decide is how important is it 
for you to avoid COVID in this case, or for the, your baby, congratulations on the baby, to avoid COVID. In this case, it sounds like it's really important to her. And I, I would understand if I had a newborn was very little immunity and we just don't want our newborns to get ill full stop. I think it is very important to try to reduce their, their risk of COVID as much as possible. So if that's the case, this is what I would recommend for grandparents or anybody else who's visiting. I'm less concerned about the transit, that flight, than I am about what is that person doing prior to coming. So what I would recommend is at least three days, but ideally up to five days before that trip for that individual, the grandfather in this case, to limit his activities. So do not go to indoor restaurants. Don't dine with friends in indoor settings. When he goes to grocery stores or pharmacies or to work, make sure that he's wearing an N95 or equivalent. So an N95, KN95, or KF94 mask the entire time when in indoor settings, three to five days before. Then at the airport, um, if he's taking a, a taxi or Uber or something else, um, and on the plane to make sure to be wearing a well-fitting N95 or equivalent the entire time. Type of mask really matters. I get very worried when I see people wearing a cloth mask or even a surgical mask thinking that that's protecting them. It's not, especially when you have this extremely these extremely contagious variants. If you're going to wear a mask, wear the best quality mask that you can tolerate, ideally this N95 or equivalent. So um, try to plan your meal so that you're eating at a quiet corner at the airport when you're on the plane, especially during takeoff and uh, we're sorry during boarding and deplaning which are the times of highest risk make sure that you're wearing a mask during those times turn on your air nozzle um, uh, to the fullest um, to to uh, to the fullest settings so that you're getting constant air and um, and I would say when you arrive the moment you arrive perhaps right before you enter the house take a rapid test Take that rapid test as close to your arrival as possible. I would not recommend a PCR test. I don't think that there's a need for it because the rapid test is a very good measure of your infectiousness. I think if you take all those steps, it's going to be pretty safe for, for you to interact with your new grandchild. All right, Dr. Wen, thank you so much. Dr. Wen, Emily Oster, we really appreciate both of you speaking with us today. Uh, thank you for answering all of our reader and viewer questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.